I'd like to just take a little time to reflect upon some of the themes that are relevant to to what we're doing here. To perhaps consider what what really matters for our life. And I was remembering a experience I had a few years ago going to visit a friend. And uh, he was a practitioner of many years like myself and uh, he was very excited when I came because he said, I've got something to show you. And of course I started to get excited too. He said, it's a box of chocolates. And I thought, that's quite exciting, but it didn't quite match the level of excitement he was showing. Um, And I know I probably shouldn't be talking about boxes of chocolates while you're here on a retreat and don't really have access to such things, but uh, he said it's a box of chocolates and it comes with instructions. And I thought, interesting, you know, like most of us, we probably don't think we need instructions. You know, we know what to do with a box of chocolates. But anyway, said, here it was, and it said this, this, it said this, instructions. It said this, please follow the instructions, written very carefully on the box. And it said this, this box of finest Belgian praline chocolates has been handcrafted for your exquisite delight and satisfaction. Please follow the instructions. Said, turn off the television. Put away your newspaper and magazines. It was a little while ago. These days it would say, turn off your devices. It didn't say that, but that's what it would say these days. It said, put away your magazines and sit down somewhere comfortable by yourself or with a friend. It said, open the box and gaze upon these forms and shapes. Take a moment to notice the subtle aromas. Then choose one and place it on your tongue. Don't chew it. Just wait a moment, pause, allow the chocolate to begin to melt. And as it does so, chew slowly, paying attention to the flavour. Don't swallow too quickly, wait until the molten chocolate begins to trickle down the back of your throat. Take a moment to savour the experience, and then, if you wish, it said, take another. And it was quite delightful, both, first of all, just reading the instructions. And clearly this is, you know, meditation practice with chocolate. But also actually doing it, and we followed it, just to a letter, in a sense, really. And then, I can't remember which of us said this, but it, it, you know, it, it remains with me to this day. We, we looked at each other, we said, one of us said to the other, we both agreed, and said, you know, normally you don't really taste the chocolate. And it's so true. We're not really there for it. Even if we taste the first moment of it, then we're busy thinking about the other flavours that might have been better or what would be the next one or how many can I have and not be too greedy. You know? Or should I really save some of these for my other friend? But I want to eat. You know, all the other things we get lost in. And there's something for me in this how that it speaks to our relationship with life, in fact. How 
So often we don't really allow ourselves, we don't create the conditions and support ourselves to really receive it, to receive what it offers us. That we kind of rush through the process of taking it in. At least those things that we'd like to take in and perhaps we equally you know, engage in struggles to avoid taking in other things. But the sense of What is it like to really pause and let ourselves receive our life? And what's happening here is really that. We're being invited, encouraged, supported, reminded to stop, to pause and begin to receive our life. Begin to taste it more fully, more deeply. And as we engage, as we turn towards our experience, towards the sense of being awake, being present, being mindful, being aware that we've spoken about and just using the simple experience of body and breath, of walking and standing, as a reference, as a support to gather ourselves, to orient ourselves towards the simple immediacy, we see that it's, although it's a very simple instruction, it's actually not at all easy. And it's funny because we might come along doing something like this for the first time and be a little surprised to discover how, just how not easy it is. We also come along having done this before and feeling like we could do it the last time we came and rediscover again, oh yeah, that's right, it's not easy, is it? It's remarkable how many times we can get to have that rediscovery experience of, oh, oh gosh, Look what happens inside this heart and this mind. We tend to live so disconnected from our life, so distant, so easily lost in a multiplicity of different demands, interests, concerns, hopes and fears. In fact, uh, the much-loved teacher from Thailand, Buddha Dasa, who lived in the 20th century, and I regard as one of my sort of dharma, which dharma I mean that's the word referring to the Buddha's teachings. So sort of, he's I regard him as one of my ancestors, although I never met him, just through the the lineage of teachers that came from him. And he was once asked. He said he was asked, you know, how would you describe the world? And he responded in three words. He said, lost in thought. And it's interesting, isn't it, if we reflect on that. Both the ordinary experience of lost in thought. Yeah, it happens. But lost. Lost in thought. So much of our lives, it seems, we're caught in, entangled with or submerged beneath what can seem like an ongoing, unstoppable process of mental activity, of thinking and feeling, of reactivity, of distractedness, of agitation, of drowsiness, of hope and fear. And to some extent, what we encounter when we come on a retreat is all of this. To begin with, that's not at all unusual. In case you were wondering if you were doing it wrong, 
it's actually sometimes what happens. It's equally something we can encounter when we've been in the midst of this process and practice for a considerable period of time. It's not just something that happens at the beginning. But to notice what it's like to turn towards the experience itself. To see, oh, okay, it's like this. Sometimes we feel lost. Sometimes we feel confused. Sometimes we experience ourselves struggling with what's happening. Of course, at other times we might feel at ease. We might be enjoying or we might be feeling quite relaxed and it feels kind of sweet. But not necessarily always. Not necessarily all the time. And this is something important to see, something important to contemplate. To understand that it's not a random event that we are often lost and disconnected. It's not to say we should blame ourselves for that. But there's a way in which we need to take responsibility. There's this story I once heard of a, uh, a businessman driving out into the country from the city where he was usually engaged and... Um, trying to get to an important meeting somewhere and he didn't know the way and he got lost. He was getting rather frustrated. He stopped and he saw a woman working in the field and he said, can you tell me the way to, to Crown Hall? And she said, I don't know, I've never heard of Crown Hall. I don't know where that is. And uh, so he says, can you tell me the name of the street to this road that I'm on? She says, actually I don't know the name of the road. I'm not sure it's got a name actually. And this is the country. And uh, he looked at her and he was getting a bit irritated. He says, you know, you don't seem to know very much at all, do you? And she smiled. She said, you know, that's right, but I'm not lost. We can easily tend to blame others or the world for the situation we find ourselves in. It's not that we should be blaming ourselves necessarily, but taking responsibility means acknowledging, oh, okay, maybe I'm needing to look at what's happening here, to understand the process whereby I become lost, or another way to describe it would be, in a way, submerged in my life. So it feels like I'm sort of not able to really see and feel my life fully, clearly, but more like just struggling to stay afloat within it. It's important that we be really kind with ourselves in this situation, to not be judgmental, to not blame others, to not blame ourselves. There's a, a teaching from the Stoic tradition, which uh, I guess it was ancient Greeks, I don't know much about it, but a student on a retreat once told me this. He, he said that there's a particular teaching um, sort of maxim they have that says something like this. He says, in Stoic, Stoicism, we, we say that um, those who are unlearned blame others. Those who are learning blame themselves. Those who have learnt blame no one. I think very interesting, that sense of, you know, when we're not really very aware, the tendency is to imagine, if we're not really reflecting on our life, the tendency is to imagine it's all being done to me, it's all being caused somehow externally by situations, people, things, the challenges, the difficulties of my life. 
And we can see in the world sometimes the way people tend to respond to things. There's always, you know, blaming, judging, criticizing, attacking others, communities or institutions. And then there can be a sort of a self-reflective phase, and this is not unusual on retreat, and there's people obviously in some process of sort of looking at our lives and the sense to say, oh gosh, look what my mind does. It's become a, oh, oh my gosh, look, I'm lost again. Oh, what's going on here? Easily we can start to be kind of a bit hard on ourselves. In that process of learning, as we begin to wake up and see how caught at times, how entangled at times, how reactive at times our hearts and our minds are. And so just that that offering from the, the Stoic tradition, those who have learnt, and we say in this, those who have some understanding, blame no one. It's a really important place to, to begin, is to see, okay, this isn't about attributing blame, but taking responsibility for the fact, or for the condition of my heart and mind. Because this is the fundamental condition of our life. It's not actually to do with the circumstances around us. What's fundamental to our well-being, to our happiness, to what we deeply care about is the condition of our heart and our mind. And of course that is related and connected to the condition of the heart and mind of others too. And of course our body is very close in that. Our heart and mind cannot be in any absolute way separated from our body, and so that too is part of what we're deeply concerned about, affected by, touched by, and so in the retreat we we give attention to, we turn towards, we orient our our interest towards this heart, this mind, this body, and we start giving a lot of attention to the body because actually the body's a little more tangible, a little more substantial. We can kind of feel it more directly and. Also, rather usefully, it tends to be more steady. It changes less quickly than thoughts and feelings. So we can start to steady ourselves, start to ground ourselves here in the immediacy of our life, in the actuality of our life. And what we see, what we feel, and it's pretty much inevitable in this situation. It's not accidental. We start to notice all the things that pull or that push, that drive, that compel, that seduce us into leaving, into disappearing, into pursuing in the realms of thought and the conceiving of our minds something that would be better or different or improved upon this. Or likewise getting caught up in patterns and habits of trying to work out ways to avoid to bring to an end or to avoid the things we find difficult. Essentially, we are lost, it seems. If we're honest with ourselves, we're lost a significant amount of our lives. We're lost in the grip of fear and the grip of craving, desire. And through the power of those particular tendencies, those forces, operating in the heart and mind and in our lives. And of course they're operating in our world all around us. Likewise, we find ourselves living our life or trying to live our life much more in the past and the future than in the present. And it's in the past we look for the 
whatever it was that caused things to happen that we liked so we can try and repeat them. And we figure out in the future, we're thinking in the future, how can I make those things that happened in the past that were good, how can I make them happen again? Or when they happen, how can I make them last longer? And we're likewise looking to see how did all those things in the past that were painful or difficult that I didn't like, how did they happen? And once I figure that out, then I'm trying to figure out in the future how I can stop them ever happening again. Or if they do happen, I can end them as quickly as possible. And in those two movements, in those two dimensions, we're lost in fear and desire much of the time. And we're therefore engaged in this process of orienting towards past and future as if this is where our life is to be lived. But there's something something fundamentally unsatisfying about that. Something actually kind of painful and tragic. And uh, this is a simple example of that that's kind of perhaps relevant. Um, that I, you know, in terms of my own experience, once on a retreat, I remember that there was, uh, at lunchtime, serving of lasagna. It was, you know, on that, and it's one of those things that I rather like. And I remember being in the queue and there was lasagna. And it's like, this should be a good experience, shouldn't it? Here they are, they've put this thing I really like out for lunch. But even in the queue, it was like, oh gosh, how much of that am I allowed? You know, it says take a moderate portion. Okay, how big can you make a moderate? You know, how how big can it be and still be moderate? And then you say, oh, they've already cut it up. Okay, so I'll just take that much. And taking it back, and there's this delicious, aromatic, flavoursome food. I really like lasagna. And and yet, as I'm eating it, I'm thinking, will there be enough for seconds? Will there be enough for seconds? And so I'm bolting this lasagna down. And, you know, I'm really not tasting it. I'm not really enjoying it. I'm thinking about whether there'll be another one, whether there'll be some more in the future. And, of course, the tragedy of the story, perhaps you can guess, it's not, you know, by the time I've eaten the first one, I'm actually not hungry anymore. I'm stuffed. I took quite a big piece. The biggest moderate piece there was. And I hadn't enjoyed this. I didn't actually want any more. And it's kind of like, oh, that was sad. It could have been lovely, but it wasn't. So many things in life, we can't quite let ourselves enjoy them because we're so desperate to have more of them than actually, in this case, I really need it. Do you recognize that tendency, that dynamic? It's like how even that which we really love and enjoy, it's hard to fully receive it because we can't stay here with it. And to notice that, to see, oh my gosh, this, this way in which in our lives so much of the time we're tipping forward, we're tipping forward towards something that we imagine if we get there and get it the way I want it to be, I'm going to be really happy. But it doesn't work that way. What we actually feel is off balance and sometimes a little bit ill because of it. So we kind of have the opportunity here to notice that. Oh, okay, yeah, so even in the retreat, there's often the sense of pressure, this movement of, I need to get somewhere. I've got to get, I've got to be mindful. I've got to be present. 
Those guys at the front, they told me that's what I'm supposed to be, and I'm not. So I've got to get there. I've got to get there, and there's not much time. It's been a whole day already. I'm still not there. Or maybe I am for a little while, but then now I'm not anymore. Oh my gosh, I've lost it. This underlying so much of our life is this unnoticed, unquestioned sense that somehow I've got to get somewhere, somewhere else. Or there's something missing, and we've got to find it. We've got to make it happen. We've got to produce it. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I've got to keep asking, well, is this working? Will this get me there? Will this meditation do it? What about that other meditation I used to do before? Maybe there's going to be a better meditation tomorrow. He said the instructions are going to unfold. This is just the practice one. This is the, it's not the real one. The real one that's going to get me there, that's coming soon. You know, well, I'm not going to say it isn't going to happen, but if we sense that orientation of leaning forward, leaning into, looking for, it's based on, it's founded on a sense that somehow what's here isn't okay. And it's exhausting. It's tiring. You know, sometimes going through the practice, the meditation, it's like, you know, come to this point in the day, is anyone a little bit tired? Anyone found it was like, whoa, hard work so far? You know, you don't have to sort of call out, but just, just noticing. It's like, you know, if you explain to your friends at home who haven't done this, what you did today, Oh, well, we got up. Yeah, it was a little early, but, you know, they told us we should sit on a cushion or in a chair for half an hour. And then we had breakfast and, you know, we did a little bit of work and then we sat around for another 45 minutes to an hour. Then they said, walk back and forth. Don't go anywhere. Just slowly. Stand around for a little bit. Sit down a bit more. Stand up if you want to. And after a day of that, I'm tired out. They won't believe you. They'll think, what's going on? Come on, you're kidding me. It sounds like the cushiest day ever. But we know that it's not easy. Because in doing that very, not very much, we actually come into contact with the force and the push and the pressure and the pull that's driving us to try and do something, to get somewhere, to be someone. And we can be sitting, thinking, oh yeah, sitting, it's okay, but oh, the walking, the walking will be good. Yeah, 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 the walking. We get to the walking, the walking's good for... You know, a few minutes and then, oh, the sitting, the sitting, yeah, the sitting will be good. Have you noticed that sort of thing? Or standing, I can't wait. Oh, standing, that was good. Oh, gosh, when can I sit down? You know, and then lunch. Great, lunch, lunch. What's after lunch? Cup of tea, lie down. Oh, some more practice. This do, 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 do. And just noticing that momentum and keep meeting ourselves, pausing and just saying, okay, I'm here. I'm here. It's like this. This is what's happening. And we start to then have the opportunity to ask ourselves, to not as a sort of a cerebral intellectual question, but in terms of what we sense, what we feel more deeply, what, what's important for me? What do we really value? What do we care about? And there's different ways we could respond to that. You know, what's important in life? I'm not trying to define it or tell you what it is for you, but I think we know for ourselves when we pause a little, when we allow ourselves to feel into our life. And, you know, we could articulate it in terms of, you know, language that might express something about peace or happiness, well-being for ourselves, for others. That's natural, that's appropriate. And yet, it seems we don't necessarily know, we haven't learned, we certainly haven't been taught 
or certainly not guaranteed to have been taught, what brings that about? How it is that we can find that? So it's like we start from a place of caring. Caring is an inherent in a human being. We, we, we care. We wouldn't be here if we didn't care. We wouldn't stay. We wouldn't engage in this activity if we didn't care at all. We couldn't. It wouldn't make sense. But we don't necessarily have the wisdom to go with the caring. We don't necessarily yet have the understanding of what it is that allows that caring to be expressed in a way that truly brings us more fully into that which we care about, which we value, which we love, which is dear to us. And so this is the, the process of practice, is by starting to see what's going on. We start to consider, we start to perhaps understand more fully, more clearly, more deeply what's happening. Living in a world as we do that is essentially oriented to a large degree, it seems, around the sort of the, the values of production and consumption, making more, having more, consuming more. Materialism, as if this is the basis of happiness and well-being. And we have so much, so much. Our you know previous generations and our ancestors couldn't have imagined how much we have. This is already more. But we say, let's have even more than this. And I don't imagine any of you would be here if you didn't have a good sense of that already. I mean, why come to a retreat? You're not going to get any more stuff, are you? It's not a place to sort of fill up your shopping bags. But yet that, that orientation is something that actually shows itself equally in spiritual practice, equally in meditation, that sense of trying to get more, trying to get more. And there's something kind of radical and profound in the contemplating the possibility that maybe this is enough. So much effort, so much energy goes into pursuing and avoiding experience, which requires us to be able to control it. Whether outer experiences in the world or inner experiences, have you noticed how much success we have if we try and control our mind. don't know if anyone's managed to get their mind to do exactly what they want for the last 24 hours. And that's just 24 hours in support of conducive conditions. Anyone want to put their hand up? I'm not putting my hand up. I'm just, I know. Oh, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? This, this heart, this mind that's so intimate, that feels so close and so central to what I imagine myself to be, and it doesn't do what I tell it to. You know, doesn't it, it seems like it should be that I could say, okay, so let's just be mindful and present for five minutes, or ten, or two, and it would do that, but not necessarily, it seems. Our mind, our body, the weather, the food, other people, the plumbing, you know, at one point there was a thought, oh gosh, this is going to be interesting if they have to tear down half the building to stop that leak. Fortunately, the uh, coordinators managed to work out that there was a leaking tap in a cupboard that had filled the cupboard up and then it was dripping through the ceiling. But uh, things happen like that in our lives, don't they? Things go wrong. Things don't quite do what they're supposed to do. And actually... How do we live in a life in a world where that is the case?
this process of seeking to get things the way I want them, seeking pleasure, hoping to avoid pain. It's natural, it's not inappropriate that we do that to a certain degree, of course, for our well-being. But there's a way in which we get lost in the process. And that we can attend to, that we can transform. There's a wonderful story about Mullah Nasruddin, who's a teaching figure in the Sufi tradition. Although um, he's a wise man, but he's also somewhat of a fool, it seems, though. We could perhaps imagine his foolishness as a way of waking us up to our own. But he, Nasruddin is uh, on one occasion found by a group of his friends sitting at the corner of the square on market day in the village. And he has a large pile of chilies, red chilies he's presumably got from the market. And he's eating them one at a time. And his face is bright red, his eyes are streaming, his nose is running. He's obviously in considerable discomfort and distress. And he's eating these chilies. And they come up and say, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? He picks another one up and eats it. And his whole body shut. He says, I'm eating these chilies. And they say, Mullah, Mullah, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? Nasruddin looks at them and smiles. He says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And there's something quite touching in that story, that sense of the innocent naivety and the hope that we might perhaps also recognize in ourselves. You know, we could say to Nazareth there, you know, if you've tried all those chilies and they're not sweet, they're actually hot and they burn, it's highly unlikely that they're going to be different because the nature of chilies is that. If we in our lives, and we've some of us been at it for quite a few decades, and some of us for a few less decades, but nonetheless for some time indeed, if we haven't actually managed to get it all to be the way we want it by now, doing whatever we do, we sometimes imagine I just got to keep going and work harder. But it might actually be the truth is that actually it's not going to work. It's like eating more chilies, having worked out so far that the chilies are hot. Pretty much every configuration we can create in our life ends up having that limitation. It doesn't ultimately do it for us. It doesn't get us there. It doesn't get us away from here. So we're invited again and again to turn towards where we are and to begin to first of all recognize and then let go of that urge, not be carried so much by that movement away from towards some optimal condition that we create or construct or try to create and construct through our thinking about how things could or should be with the absence of the difficult and the presence of the wished for how we could create that to be. Because life is inevitably a mixture of those things we like and those things we find difficult. All situations have some of both. And maybe we need to find a different orientation. This is what spiritual teachings invite us to consider, point us towards understanding, towards looking at and seeing for ourselves. Notice how 
much we wish for entertainment. And the beautiful sort of grounds of Gaia House, we can be walking around enjoying the things and we come inside and, you know, so many people I've seen, including myself, you know, on retreat, getting the tea bags out and looking at the labels and reading them with a degree of interest that is remarkable for something that has really nothing to offer us. But it's like we're hungry for entertainment, for give me some words, give me some text, you know, something to connect to or the, you know, walking past the notice board and just checking in case there's something new that has gone up in the five minutes since I last walked past the notice board. Now it's good to check it now and then because we do actually post things but you might notice sometimes that sense of we're kind of looking for something. It's like, oh, there's this underlying somehow sense of I need something outside of me, something out there and I'm looking, I'm looking. I'm not seeing that that's happening. I'm just doing it. So we start to notice it, we start to see it, we start to feel that. And we realise that, oh, that's where I seem to spend a lot of my time. That's where I spend a lot of my energy. That's actually where we spend a lot of our life. And we're not quite alive in it, it seems. And yet here we are, these kind of curious, tender beings that we call, you know, human, humans, human beings. These hearts that we have that wish for happiness and well-being, for freedom and peace. And naturally and rightly we do wish for these things for ourselves, for those we love and for others and the world. Of course we do. So we have to try something different. If the way we've been doing it so far isn't producing the results, keeping doing that and expecting different results, I think that's one of the definitions of insanity, isn't it? Doing the same thing and hoping something different's going to happen. On that basic uh, test, you know, Nazareth in the story, I, wouldn't, I mean, insanity is perhaps the strong word, but we can see there's a certain foolishness, perhaps we could say, if we can say that in a kindly way, that we might recognize in ourselves. to try something different. takes a certain courage because if we don't know, if we're going to try something new, there's a risk we're going to make a mistake. We're going to get it wrong. And so often we have the pressure upon us that we place upon ourselves, that we feel around us that we've got to get it right. We can tend to judge ourselves quite harshly at times. Expect that somehow doing something we should get it right. If we're doing it the first time, how can we get it right? Even if we're doing it the 50th time, there's still plenty of room for not getting it right, it seems. So is it okay? Can we give ourselves permission to be in a process of learning, a process of growing, where we're not imagining that just because our bodies stopped growing, we've grown up? That's a tragic mistake, isn't it? Now, we're pretending we've grown up. I know you've got to look like you've grown up. You've got to act like you've grown up. You don't want to let anybody else know that actually on the inside we haven't grown up at all. Well, maybe we've grown up some, but we notice there's a bit more growing up to be done. And if we start to admit that and acknowledge that and say, oh, yeah, actually, it's like that for all of us. There is no end of growing. There's no up. 
as in point where we got to or get to where we've done it and it's finished now. That's purely a physical thing. And of course you know with your body, once it's finished growing up, there's only one option left for it, which is it starts growing down. And that's the way it heads. That's the nature of our body. Maybe a couple of decades growing up and then a certain amount of time heading in the other direction. So there's a there's a kind of a invitation here to make good use of this precious but temporary opportunity. And I'm not just talking about the retreat, which is, of course, quite a substantial period of time, but certainly not forever. But equally this life, which I certainly wish for all of us to be full and substantial, but absolutely is not forever. To start to become curious about our life. To become curious about what's actually happening here. Is it exactly as I have imagined and believed, as we have, it seems, collectively agreed, as to what's important, as to what we should be doing with our time? How much of it should we really be giving to having more, producing more, and safeguarding the more that we've got so we can have even more later? Some of that we need to really take care of, of course. But the more fundamental things, we so easily give them a little bit, a fragment, a crumb of our time and energy. And yet here we have the opportunity to give ourselves wholeheartedly to that which we really care about. And that... So again, there's a little bit something risky in that, to be curious, to be interested, to be a little uncertain, to risk looking foolish. You know, there's that saying in our culture, I guess you're familiar with it, that says, curiosity killed the cat. It's like, well, best not be, you know, best stay with what we know and do the normal thing and don't kind of go beyond the limits at all. I was reading something a while ago and... Uh, I found out that the saying goes more. It's, it's not the whole saying. The original saying, you're familiar with the saying, curiosity killed the cat. We hear it all the time. You know, it's like, when you think about what the implication of that is, it's like, don't be curious, don't explore, don't look. It's one of the delightful things about cats, as they do. And children, likewise. They do. The curiosity killed the cat, and then the cat came back. Hmm. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That was actually the original saying, apparently. Curiosity killed the cat, and then the cat came back. Now that's got me curious. What does that mean? What might that be pointing to? And I think really what it's saying is that, yeah, there might be something that needs to die, or that we need to allow to drop away, in terms of our certainties and our familiarities about what the way of orienting or engaging with our life that will truly serve us, what that might look like. Because if the way we've been engaging up till now isn't leading us towards that which we'd wish for most, then we really have no other option but to try something different. And if trying to get to somewhere, or trying to get something, or trying to be someone hasn't worked for us yet, 
I would suggest there's a reasonably good chance it's not going to work for us, even if we keep trying that. And so what might it be to then see, maybe if I don't try and get somewhere else, what if I start to explore what's actually here? And this is again what we're doing, what we're invited to engage in here. And with regard to this, the the Buddha invited us, as one of his kind of teachings, one of the areas of suggestion that that he gave, was to to actually connect with what we see in the immediacy as, as, as wholesome, as good. And the word he used, kalyana, that which is lovely, that which is uplifting to the heart. To connect with that which is wholesome. To notice, and not so much in a sense of dwelling upon the past, but noticing the kind actions that express themselves in your life and the life of others around you. Notice the the intentions that are born from caring and from well-wishing. Notice the aspirations for your life, for what might be possible. And see what happens if we just allow ourselves to acknowledge all of that. And just even you might just take a moment and look around. You don't have to, but you know, to see who else is here. These people who have come, who are sitting here like you are with you. You know, it's hard work doing this. It's really hard work, but gosh, it will be so much harder work if we were doing it sitting in a room by ourselves. And you know, the people who come on retreats like this, I, again, I have the fortune and the privilege I get to talk to you all while you're here. You don't necessarily so much get that privilege, perhaps a little at the beginning and the end. But reliably, consistently, people come with sensitivity and care, with good hearts and kindliness and the sense of, oh, oh, look, there's actually something beautiful here that we're in the midst of. It's not something we have to produce. It's not something we have to get to. It's not something that's going to happen at the end of the retreat. Although, of course, things can grow, can deepen. But actually just acknowledging, even in yourself, that you care deeply. Even if we don't yet know how to live our life as fully and well as we might wish to, but that we care deeply. What happens if we allow ourselves to acknowledge that? Something about honouring ourselves, really important here. Engaging in a practice and spiritual discipline that is not at all easy. And you know, at the end of the sittings, I bring my hands together and some of yours. It's not required, just so you know. You don't have to do this. It's not one of the sort of club membership things that, you know, like the secret handshake or, you know, you do this and you're in. It's an expression of appreciation, of gratitude, of respect in the tradition and different forms in Asia that you find. It's also, you know, in Western culture, it's associated with prayer and bowing down. And that sense of, for me, bringing my hands together in front of my heart and just actually just saying, well, it's great that we're doing this. Honouring with gratitude, appreciation, and likewise bowing to the Buddha, that sense of honouring something beautiful that's actually here in ourselves, in each other. One of the kind of essential teachings and understandings of the Buddha was that 
He said, what we give attention to and how we attend, this is what shapes our world, our mind, our life. The mind and the world arise in the giving attention to. A sense of me and other arises in the giving attention to. Starting to notice and make that process conscious, to see what drives it, what moves it, and what can inform it. What can inform the process of giving attention? We see, even when we hear, we talk about giving attention. Oh, it's like an offering. It's like something we do to something, isn't it? You don't do a present to somebody, you give it. Offering, oh, we're offering our attention to our experience, to our body, to our life. So we're already in a place in which we're, we're expressing a generosity, in fact, an offering of something that honors that to which it is offered. Does it follow? The honoring of that to which our attention is offered. By paying attention to our life, we're honoring it. By paying attention to our experience, we're honoring it. By paying attention to the immediacy of this moment right here. We're honoring that, and in the honoring of it, we actually start to perhaps sense it a little more deeply, feel ourselves a little closer to it, hear perhaps more clearly what it has to say or to offer to us. And even though it might seem in a day of practice there's been so many minutes of distraction, reaction, boredom, frustration, thinking what's the point of all of this and I wish my knees didn't ache and why don't they have this kind of tea when they've got all those kinds of teas? You know, all of that. And there will still, I'm sure, have been moments for each of us where we connected, where we just felt, ah, yeah, just this breath, just this moment, just this step, just this sip of a cup of tea. Or something like that. And maybe more than just a few of those moments, we start to notice that, oh, there's something in those moments that's qualitative. It's not quantitative in the sense of there may not have been so many of them, but that's not the point. We start to see, oh, there's something qualitative here. Attention is transformative. And so we learn to cultivate attention. We practice the cultivation of attention. Noticing how our attention is often captured by our reactivity. Our resistance to certain experiences we find uncomfortable or threatening, or our wish for other experiences we find enjoyable, pleasurable or flattering. Learning to recognize the pulls and the pushes and begin to just relinquish, extract ourselves from the momentum of mental activity or sometimes physical activity because the mind moves and sometimes the body follows. But often in the sitting, in the practice, we, we see, we feel the mind move, we feel the energy go and then we actually at some point recognize what's happening, we come back. And often that sense of wishing our mind would be quiet Again, it's a pretty common thing for people to talk about. Oh, I wish my mind was a bit quieter. So, because we're starting to actually feel the distress involved in its activity. We're starting to feel the discomfort involved in our mind being captured by reactivity. And so we learn to just settle, to come back again and again and again, to 
be present simply with our experience. And it's important to be gentle with ourselves in that regard, not be hard on ourselves. If we notice a lot of reactivity, sometimes we could reflect upon the, uh, the, was it, the, uh, the, I don't know if it's a proverb or a saying or an aphorism. I'm not even sure what an aphorism is actually. Um, from India anyway, this uh, question that's posed sort of in this context, how do you fence in a rogue bull elephant? A rogue bull elephant that's a very large, powerful creature can trample any fence you can build. So how do you fence it in? And the, you know, the answer is you put it in a very large field. If it's a large enough field, it has no need to trample the fence down. The way we hold our mind, we easily tend to contract and tighten to try and get it to be quiet. And we can do that for a little while. But we can't sustain it. It's not actually sustainable. But the sense of giving ourselves space, gathering the attention in again and again and again, no matter how many times it goes, no matter where it goes, no matter how often we lose contact, no matter for how long or to what places we find ourselves drawn, noticing what happens coming back again and again and again we start to actually get some space and capacity to hold what's happening here. And we notice how, how it's just not easy for us to be in this experience. And yet we can start to make space for what's here. We can start to open to what's here. So the spirit of the practice is very much about seeing not how much I can make it what I like, whether I like it or whether I don't, but what can I learn from this process? What can I discover in this journey? And also, what can I give to my life? Certainly we can give our attention, but what more than that? To see this as a journey of learning is to perhaps be willing to be challenged and stretched a little because that's how we learn. Going beyond what is comfortable, going beyond what is familiar. And so we might not quite know where it's going or quite how to navigate the territory we find ourselves in. But be willing to come back into contact directly again and again with our experience. We'll start to find what we need to know is actually revealed right here. It seems like it's a lot of work to be present, to be mindful, to be awake and aware. And it does require a sustained degree of, we could say, effort or engagement in a gentle way. But you know, it's much harder to live our lives unconsciously. It's so much harder to be lost so much of the time to be constantly it seems banging in to life because we're not quite awake to what's happening and as we start to see more clearly our experience as we start to see more clearly what's happening there's a 
there's a natural understanding of the nature of the process of what's going on and an ability to harmonize with it, to bring ourselves into harmony with the actuality of life, to release our heart from the grip of fear and of craving. Presence is the natural condition. Mindfulness, awareness, sensitivity, these are natural conditions of our heart and mind. They're not something we need to produce. It's simply what's here when we're not so caught in, intoxicated by, and invested in the patterns of reactivity that dwell in the past and the future, that pursue and avoid experience. As we learn to see those movements and put them down, quite naturally and ultimately effortlessly, we find ourselves here, where we are. And the qualities we look for of peace, of space, of joy, of well-being, of happiness, they start to emerge not out of what we've produced or what we've done, but out of the, the very fabric of what's here. To see that this unfolding life, the experiences it reveals to us, do not ultimately bind or define us. that there's a natural harmony, a natural lawfulness to the process, which through understanding we release ourselves from the entanglement with. So much of the dissatisfa- dissatisfaction is born of sleepwalking through our lives. And that as we wake up more and more, naturally wisdom and compassion emerge in the face of conditions and circumstances. So we have this precious time here together to practice, to explore for ourselves, to learn what it means to be awake. And it's infinitely forgiving. We can try again, we can begin again as many times as we need to. It's always here. We don't lose that invitation or opportunity for having spurned it however many times we might, having mistaken it or confused it, it doesn't matter. We can always begin again. To know our true humanity, to know what it is that lies at the heart of our lives. This is the place, right here, if we're interested. And I think we are. So let's continue practicing together. And just for now, we'll take a couple of quiet minutes to sit before finishing the evening.
So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we we come to rest more deeply in this living experience of right now. And to, to know the remarkable and beautiful possibilities of our human heart and our human life. for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.